It is our privilege again this morning to turn again to Hebrews chapter 1. So if you would turn there with me in your Bible, Hebrews chapter 1. Perhaps like some of you, our family on occasion enjoys a good family movie night. We all pile into the living room in our PJs with some kind of yummy snack and enjoy a movie of some sort. And as I was thinking about that, it reminded me that when it comes to filming movies, the director has a lot of tools at his disposal. And he uses those tools to provoke different feelings and emotions at crucial moments within the film. For example, if a movie has a villain, there will often be several clues that he's the bad guy before he ever says a word. The music may change, and the lighting changes, and the way he's dressed is different from the other characters. But also, a good director will use the tools of his trade to introduce the hero of the story. And often this will come at some key moment of crisis when it seems that all is lost. And then suddenly, just at the right time, the music will slowly begin to change, and the the camera will begin to pan in one direction. And often the director will not reveal the hero in one single shot, but will begin at his or her feet and begin to make his way slowly up that character until the camera finally lands on his face. As the camera shot moves upward, the intensity of the music will rise with it and the lighting will rise with it, all of this creating a sense of anticipation in the audience that this matters. This moment is very important. This character is of crucial importance. In a much more significant way, the author of Hebrews has used a similar approach in causing us to look again at the magnificence of Christ. Line after line, verse after verse, the author's been building an argument about the Lord Jesus. And of course, in our text for the last few weeks, he's been arguing specifically that Jesus is superior to the angels. And with each argument, it's as if the the scene has been intensifying and building towards a climax. And this morning, we reach that final climactic moment in the author's argument of Christ's superiority over the angels. And with this final argument added to the other wonderful arguments we've already studied, we will see that his point is undeniable, that Jesus is, in fact, superior. That's the theme, of course, of the book itself, the superiority of Christ. In the first four verses, he proved that to us by showing us that Jesus as the Son of God was the, the final revelation and therefore greater even than the prophets. And then, of course, since verse 5, we've been looking at this section, proving that he is superior to the angels. Let's read our text together in Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 5 through verse 14. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? And again, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment, 
And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? As we've seen time and time again, there is one simple theme in these verses, and that is that Jesus, as God's divine Son, is undeniably superior to the angels. And this topic comes to us in verses 5 to 14 in a a really special way. There are seven Old Testament texts that bring six proofs of Jesus' superiority over the angels. Now, beginning in chapter 2, where we'll be next week, we see that the author continues this same general theme, but he's going to move beyond his argumentation to crucial implications of the fact that Jesus is superior to the angels. But over the last two weeks, we've seen the first five proofs of Jesus' superiority. Let me share those to you again just briefly. Proof one, Jesus is the Son of God. Proof two, Jesus is deserving of worship. Number three, angels are mere servants. Four, Jesus is the righteous king. And then five, Jesus is the eternal creator. Now that brings us this morning to a sixth and final proof of Jesus' authority or superiority over the angels. Proof number six, Jesus is the universal ruler. He's the universal ruler in verses 13 and 14. He begins in verse 13 with these words, But to which of the angels has he ever said? Now that should sound familiar to us because it's almost identical to verse 5. It's the way this whole argument was introduced. In verse 5 he begins, For which For to which of the angels did he ever say? Almost exactly the same as verse 13 here. In a way, these statements form a bracket. The the opening line in verse 5 and the closing part of his argument in verse 13. After that, in verse 15, he'll move to his, his conclusions, his implications that he draws off of these arguments. But in verse 5 and verse 13, the pronoun he when he says, he has he ever said, refers obviously to God the Father. When has God the Father ever said this, specifically about the angels? Now, obviously, in verse 5 and 13, he expects a negative answer. This is a rhetorical device that he's using. The point is that God has never said what he's about to say in the text about an angel. In fact, this is just another way of of uplifting the Lord Jesus Christ. As I've said before, this whole passage is not really to make a point about angels at all. It is to make several crucial points about the Lord Jesus Christ. And to make this sixth and final argument, he'll take us to yet another Old Testament text, a seventh text. Only this time, this psalm that he takes us to is in fact the most famous of the Messianic psalms in all of Scripture. This psalm is quoted more often in the New Testament than any other psalm in reference to the Messiah. In fact, it's the the Old Testament passage that the author of Hebrews will quote most frequently throughout this book. We'll be back to Psalm 110 later, particularly as he talks about the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But today, he's only going to focus on the very first verse of Psalm 110. 
Now, in order for us to understand the use of this psalm here in Hebrews, I want us to do what we've done each week and begin with the psalm itself. So we're going to look at Psalm 110, and we're going to read the entirety of the the psalm. It's only seven verses. Psalm 110, beginning in verse 1, says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, this is a psalm written by King David. And it it was a famous psalm in its day, just as it is now. And the original audience would have immediately known where this reference came from when it's quoted here in Hebrews. And they would also have known that it was never spoken of angels. They knew who this was about. This was a messianic psalm. It's, it's, in fact, it's, it's more clear in this psalm than perhaps in any other that the person being described is not David, it's not anyone other than the Messiah who would be the Lord Jesus Christ. What's interesting is that this psalm was so well known, the author of Hebrews skips the opening line. He skips the words, the Lord says to my Lord, and he just begins with, sit at my right hand. That's because everyone already knew who the psalm was about. Now, when we read those words, the Lord says to my Lord in English, it's tempting to think that he must have used the same word to refer to the one speaking as the one being spoken to but we would be incorrect. In fact, the Hebrew says it this way, Yahweh says to my Adonai. Yahweh says to my Adonai. Now, the Jews would often insert the word Lord or Adonai for the proper name of God, Yahweh, out of respect so that no one mispronounced the name or even said the name because it was considered to be so holy. But literally, the Hebrew reads, Yahweh says to my Adonai. Adonai, as I said, is a word that simply means master or Lord. It could be used of a person who is in a high and exalted position, but most often it's used in reference to God himself, and specifically the Messiah. And we see here clearly that David, as he writes this, is not writing about himself, because he says, Yahweh, God, says to my Adonai. He's speaking of a future king, the Messiah. He's speaking prophetically here, of something that will take place when the Messiah comes and rules. We know that definitively, not only from the text here in Psalm 110, but because when the Messiah came, he claimed that this passage was about him. Jesus himself brings us to this passage in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. You might remember this this wonderful scene from Jesus' ministry when when they, three different groups come to him asking questions, trying to trap him, or trying to ask him difficult questions to trap him in his words so that they can accuse him and ultimately put him to death. Jesus masterfully answers all of their questions in such a way that they're afraid to ask him any further questions. The Herodians ask him about paying taxes. 
The Sadducees ask him about the resurrection because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And the Pharisees ask him about the law. Which is the greatest law? And Jesus answers their question. But then to add insult to injury, Jesus approaches them and asks them a question. Now let me ask you, if you wanted to to use one Old Testament passage to stump a Pharisee, which one would you choose? Jesus chose this one. He chose Psalm 110 verse 1. Listen to how Jesus talks about our passage for this morning. This is Matthew 22, beginning in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, here's our passage, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. I love that. They were smart. Now notice that that Jesus says some very important things about our text that are going to play into how we understand it here in context in Hebrews. First of all, he introduces this with a question about the Messiah. Clearly, in Jesus' mind, there was a direct connection between the Messiah and Psalm 110. And the Pharisees answer his question exactly as he know, in the way that he knows they will. Every two-year-old in Israel knew that the Messiah would be the son of David. That was a softball question. When he says, whose son is the Messiah? Uh, well, he's the son of David, of course. But Jesus wants them to understand. He's not denying that, that the Messiah is the son of David. He wants them to understand that he's not merely the son of David. Also, we notice here that Jesus affirms the doctrine of inspiration. Because he says that David was not speaking on his own, but was speaking by the Holy Spirit. Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, Jesus says. And in so doing, he shows that Psalm 110.1, our text, refers to the Messiah, and therefore it refers to Jesus himself. And he makes a crucial point here. This is key for us to understand. And it is that that David, of course, was the king of Israel, right? No one, humanly speaking, outranked David at the time. And yet, how does David refer to this person in Psalm 110.1? My Adonai, my master, my Lord. Jesus is making the point, how can he be his son, or merely his son, if David himself calls this person Lord? What is he saying? He's saying this one outranks David, and David knew it, Because this one, the Messiah, would not only be the son of David, but the very son of God. And of course, in making this point about the Messiah, Jesus is making the point about himself as the Messiah. Now, how does all this play into our text here in Hebrews? Well, I share that with you because I want us to be in the same place as the original audience when they would have heard this. Because they knew these things. The original audience would have known Psalm 110, just like we might know John 3.16, for example. They knew Psalm 110.1. They knew that this referred to the Messiah. And these are Christian Jews who likely have heard the teaching of Jesus. They may even had one of the Gospels there available to them. So they would have known Jesus' reference to this text, referencing it to himself. 
And so now we're in the same place as the original audience so that when we read the words here, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, we know who he's talking about. He's not talking about angels. He's talking about his own son, the Messiah. With that in mind, let's look at the words themselves. Let's look at this quote from Psalm 110.1 and pull out the, the rich meaning that the author of Hebrews has in mind. He begins here, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand. Now, you may remember that when we began Hebrews, we actually looked at this passage once before because the, the author of Hebrews has already alluded to it. In Hebrews 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. When he referred to this passage earlier, he was using it as part of his argument that Jesus had made perfect purification for sins and then as a result had been exalted to the right hand of the Father. But now he takes a step further. Instead of just alluding to this text, he quotes it word for word, the entirety of verse 1, except for the first statement. What he wants us to understand here is that this text ties in directly to his argument that Jesus is superior to the angels. Why is that? It's because the invitation of the Father to the Son, offering for him to come and sit, in and of itself proves the superiority of Christ because it's an invitation that's never given to an angel. Nowhere in Scripture are we ever introduced to an angel as sitting. They're always on the move. They're always pictured as either standing in God's presence, serving in, in the worship of God, or as those who are busy fulfilling the tasks that God has given them to accomplish. They're never invited to sit. In addition to that, the location of this seat is extremely important. Now, I explained this when we went through verse 3, but understand that to sit at the right hand of a king is the highest place of honor. And this is not just the hand of a king, though. This is the hand of God. This is the throne room of God. So essentially, when he says, sit at my right hand, he's inviting the Messiah to sit in the most exalted seat in existence. There is no higher place of recognition, honor, or authority than this seat. And the Messiah is invited to sit here. Sit here at my right hand. It's an invitation to share the glory, power, and authority over all things that the Father himself has. He's inviting the Son to sit and be exalted with him. What that means is that when the Son sits next to the Father, he joins the Father's holy laughter at any enemy who would set himself up against his authority. We see this in Psalm 2, which we looked at last week. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, his enemies. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. After the resurrection, when Jesus is ascended to the Father or ascends to the Father, he's welcomed into heaven and invited to sit in his rightful place of authority, of glory, of power and honor there at the right hand of the Father. But it's important to understand that though he's pictured as seated here, 
He is not inactive. We don't need to think of the, the sitting down of the son as sort of a, this great uh, pause in which he no longer accomplishes anything. No, this is a seat of authority. It's a seat of power. And from that seat, he exercises his authority according to his will. We see this even in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Peter says that it's from this seat of authority that Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit. Verse 33 of Acts 2, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, that's Jesus, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. And then on the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes our text, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify. Peter argues from our text that it is proof that Jesus is the most exalted being, and it's from that seat of exaltation that he pours out the Holy Spirit. And just an important note here, it's actually that point that the Lord uses to break the, the hearts of those Jews listening, and they repent of their sins. Acts 2.37, now when they heard this, that's the crowd, when they heard Peter say these things, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And he tells them to repent. But not only that, we see that from this exalted seat, Jesus strengthens and comforts Stephen as he becomes a martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 7. Verse 54, now this is after, after Stephen's sermon, the Jews listening, and when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing. He's, he stands up from his seat at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. There the Lord Jesus at the right hand of the Father strengthens and then receives Stephen. On top of that, Paul explains that from this seat at the right hand of the Father, Jesus intercedes for us. Romans 8, verses 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Later in Hebrews, he'll make the exact same point about Jesus as an intercessor. Hebrews 7.25, therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is very busy at the right hand of the Father. And of course, we know that he is also there preparing a place for us as he promised his disciples in John 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So from all these passages, we see that Jesus Christ is far from inactive. He's at the right hand of the Father with full authority, using that authority to accomplish his sovereign purposes. But with that in mind, with that said, though he is actively accomplishing his will, we ought not to think that the current state of things on this planet, this fallen world, is exactly how it will be forever. There is a definite date determined by God in eternity past in which Christ will exercise his authority as the universal ruler from a literal throne on this physical planet. And we see that here in our text in Hebrews as he quotes Psalm 110 in one tiny little word, a word that that we could so easily pass by and yet miss so much. Because he says, sit at my right hand until, until. Packed into this little preposition is so much important truth. It means that the current status quo of Christ sitting in the heavens at the right hand of the Father is not the way that it will remain forever. This little word, until, reminds us that God has set a day in the future in which things will dramatically change. And those changes that are coming are explained clearly when we simply read the next part of the verse. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Though Christ is exalted to the right hand of God, he has perfect and unilateral authority as we speak He has chosen not to exercise that authority in its fullest sense for now. He has that authority, but there's this sort of intermission we find out in Scripture between when Christ ascends to heaven and when he will come down and physically reign. We know he has this authority because he said so in Matthew 28, 18, after the resurrection, just before the ascension, he begins the Great Commission by saying, All authority has been, past tense, given to me in heaven and on earth. But though he has that that power and that authority to bring everything in heaven and on earth under his rule perfectly, he's chosen to stay his hand for the time being. So what I want you to see is that in this tiny little word, until, we see both the incredible grace of God and the terrible wrath of God, all in one little word. On the one hand, this tiny word glows with the grace of God because the scriptures tell us why it is that he's taken this intermission. Why is it that Jesus didn't just immediately destroy his enemies and set up his earthly rule? Second Peter tells us. Second Peter 3, 8 and 9 says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, God the Father invites the Son to sit at his right hand, and rather than immediately setting up his righteous rule on earth, he does this as a demonstration of his incredible mercy and grace. Think about the the magnitude of this truth. 
We're currently watching our world slide further and further into rebellion and settled rejection of God and his law. Men sinfully set themselves up as enemies of God as they create their their own rules of morality and even go as far as, as accusing God and his standard of being evil. Our world is, is, is described perfectly by Isaiah 5.20 when it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. With each new cultural movement that goes further and further down the slide of immorality, in, in it's as if, as if man is shaking his fist and gritting his teeth at God saying, you will not rule over me. But what is even more astounding than man's blatant rejection of God is God's patience and kindness towards men. While sinful man goes from bad to worse, proving that they are indeed children of wrath, as Ephesians 2 says, God is meanwhile busy snatching his people out of sin, rescuing his people from darkness and death, bringing them to his marvelous light and new spiritual life. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's rescuing them one by one, building his church in the midst of the burning garbage heap that is sinful humanity. Why does he stay his hand of judgment? Why does he allow sinners to rebel against him and reject his word and curse his name? It's because of his marvelous grace by which he's compelled and determined to save his people from their sins. It is because he is gracious by nature. It's who he is. It's not just what he does. It's who he is. It's how he describes himself in Exodus 34. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. This is who God is. He's incredibly gracious. His fuse is longer than we could ever imagine. But... This word until also reminds us that God is not only gracious, but he is also just. Jesus is invited to sit at the Father's right hand for a defined period of time. And God the Father says that the Son will sit there until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God will not allow the rightful rule of his son to go unnoticed or unheeded forever. He's determined a day in which he will defeat and judge every single enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. This imagery of of making your enemies a footstool, this points back to an ancient practice in which a conquering king would literally lay his foot on the neck of the king that he conquered. We see this happen in in Joshua, actually. Joshua chapter 10. There were five kings that rose up against um, Gibeon, which was a a, a group of people the Israelites had a a covenant relationship with, a treaty. And the Israelites go and they they conquer these five kings and look, look at what happens. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring these five kings out to me from the cave. They did so and brought these five kings out to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmut, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. 
when they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with them, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and put their feet on their necks. Joshua then said to them, Do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. Understand the severity of what's being said in this simple verse. God the Father will see to it that every enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ is overthrown and defeated just as these kings had the the feet of these warriors on their necks. Every enemy of Christ will be thrown down. As you're painfully aware, it gets really hot here in Texas. Because of that, one of my family's favorite things to do in the summertime is to go to a water park. Now, now I've been to several water parks, and I've noticed that almost every water park has a, a, a place that's sort of a massive water jungle gym. There are all kinds of things to climb on and water guns to shoot and little slides that come around the entire structure. And almost without fail, looming above this area is a gigantic bucket. And the first time you see this bucket, it looks as if it might just be part of the decor. Usually these areas have some kind of decorative theme like pirate ships or sailors. And the bucket just sort of blends into the whole structure. But if you look closely, above the bucket you'll notice there's also a little spigot. And coming out of that spigot is a continuous flow of water that is filling that bucket up slowly but surely to its maximum capacity. And you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to realize that eventually that bucket is going to reach maximum capacity and it's going to become unstable and dump out its contents on everyone underneath. As you look around, there's all kinds of people playing underneath this bucket. Some of them clearly know the bucket's there and the thrill of the bucket is why they've come to this attraction. But as you look at others, you can tell that they know the bucket's there, but they're really hoping that they will not be caught in its, its, its splash. And so they're constantly playing and, and looking at, at the bucket with one eye up, hoping to move out of the way before the bucket tumps over. Then finally, there are always those who taunt the bucket. They keep a watch on the bucket and they intentionally edge closer and closer hoping that they will be fast enough to escape its splash when it starts to tilt. But once that bucket fills to the brim and can no longer hold the weight of its water, it tips over, pouring out its contents, and regardless of the disposition or thought process of those underneath, there is one universal result. They all get wet. In a similar way, this word until functions like that bucket. Sinful man makes his plans, he follows his own way, and he chooses to join the world's system in its settled rebellion and disregard of God. All have some awareness of the danger because of the conscience God's placed within them, but there are some who, having been exposed to the teachings of Scripture, have a heightened awareness of the coming consequences for their sinful actions. Some choose to pretend it doesn't exist. They just claim not to believe it. Others believe it to be true, but just can't tear themselves away from the pleasures of sin. While others not only know what they're doing and what it will produce, but they sinfully taunt God as if they somehow will find a way of escape in the end. They'll be smart enough to get out of this judgment. 
But regardless of the knowledge or response of sinful man, one reality is constantly true. The bucket is filling up. And though God is gracious and slow to anger, once the cup of his wrath is filled to the brim, he will pour it out on every single one of his enemies, and there will be nowhere to run and nowhere to hide, and all of his enemies will suffer the same fate. What will it look like? When Jesus stands from that seat at the Father's right hand and comes to take his place as rightful king. Well, we get a glimpse of it in Revelation 19. John writes, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, Assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and of the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. You see the author of Hebrews wants us to understand just how high and exalted Jesus really is. When we say that Jesus is superior, we don't even understand what we're saying. He's exalted to a height that we cannot comprehend. And he's been given literally all authority and has the power to exercise that authority to perfection. And we must grasp the personal implications of the universal rule of Christ. You personally must understand that if you're not in Christ, that God has declared you to be his enemy. If you are not in Christ, then you are one of the enemies that this verse refers to. And yet, though you're an enemy of God because of your sin against him, here you sit. What are we to make of this? Don't you see that God has been gracious to you? He's not given you what your sins against him deserve at this point. Instead, he offers to you a complete and full pardon as a gift of his grace. If you will repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved from the wrath of God that is to come. 
Because Jesus, this exalted one, came to earth and lived in our place and died as a sacrifice for sin before rising from the grave and being exalted to the right hand of God. That bucket of God's wrath was literally poured out on Jesus for all who were in Christ, for all who would repent of their sins and put their faith in him. So that those who are in Christ do not suffer the wrath of God. But don't miss the fact that this gracious offer has an expiration date. And one day Jesus will return and he will take his rightful place as king. And not one of his enemies will be able to stand. Don't waste another moment living in rebellion against this gracious God who has made a way for you to be made right with him. All of this has been said to help us understand the magnificence of this Messiah of whom the words were written, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This, of course, is enough to prove the argument, but just to round things out, he makes one more quick statement about the angels to remind us again the contrast between this exalted Jesus at the right hand of God and the angels. Look at verse 14. Are they, that is the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Here the author reminds us of what he's already said in verse 7. Remember in verse 7 he took us to Psalm 104.4 and he proved that the angels are merely created beings whose role is to serve God. And so when we think of the angels as these created servants against the Son who's exalted to the right hand, obviously there is no comparison. We also have to be careful not to miss the encouragement that's here. There's actually something very encouraging about what he says in this description of the angels. Because back in verse 7, he just explained that the angels are created servants, but that that was it. Here in verse 14, he reiterates that the angels are created servants... But he explains what the primary act of service is that God sends them out to accomplish. Look at the end of verse 14. Sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. The primary role that God's given to the angels as his servants is the service of his people. If you're a Christian, then you are one who will inherit salvation. It's already been guaranteed to you. It's been sealed by the Holy Spirit, but it will be completed. It will be finalized when God literally brings you to himself in glory. But in the meantime, God will see to it that his people persevere. I've been encouraged by this verse because it reminds me that if you're a true Christian, you will persevere to the end. I will persevere to the end. Why? For two reasons. One, God is at work in us internally by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's working on us every day from the inside out. But now we learn that he's also at work externally, employing his angels, his servants, for the benefit of his people in secret, quiet ways that we don't even know, we don't even perceive. We don't even know the many ways that God is making sure that his people are preserved to the end faithful. You see the encouragement this is. On rare occasions, God has pulled back the curtain and given his people just a little glimpse at what goes on behind the scenes with his angels. One example is in the ministry of the prophet Elisha. You remember, he is surrounded by a, the army of a pagan king, and his servant, uh, Elisha's servant, gets a, 
a view of what God is doing behind the scenes. Second Kings 6. Now when the attendant of the man of God, that's his, Elisha's helper, had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This is just one rare moment in human history in which God showed someone what he was doing behind the scenes. We are normally never privy to those things, but here we're told that this is how God uses his, his angels. Understand, it's not a promise that nothing bad will happen to us. It's not a promise that, that he will protect us from all harm or persecution, but it is a promise that he will see us faithfully through to the end, that we will remain his people because he's committed to that internally through the Holy Spirit's work, and he's committed to that even with employing his servants for the sake of those who are in Christ. And so as we come to the close of the author's argument, he's left no stone unturned. The only legitimate response to what we've seen these past three weeks is to wholeheartedly agree that Jesus is, in fact, superior to the angels. And beginning next week, we'll start to understand just why that is so significant. But this morning, as we close, I just want to highlight two obvious ways that we must respond to these wonderful truths. Number one, submit to Christ. Submit to Christ as the universal ruler of all. We must freely recognize the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to emphasize that that obviously is important at salvation. We, we bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ at salvation. But that is to be now the disposition of every Christian through the rest of their lives. How does that play out in normal life? Well, when you open the scriptures and you read a teaching or a command that grates against your flesh, it's not what you want to do. It confronts the way you think. You've always thought truth was this, and the Bible says no truth is this. Well, it looks like submission to the scriptures. It looks like submission to the Lord Jesus Christ through what he's revealed to us on the pages of his word, following him in our daily lives, committing that we will, by the power of the Spirit, seek to be conformed to the image of Christ day by day. Submit to the leadership of Christ through the word and the authority of Christ. Secondly, trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. That glorious word, until, reminds us that as difficult as life in a fallen world can be, it is not forever. This is not our final home. We, in fact, already have our citizenship papers for another kingdom. Christ has purchased them for us. But until then, he will hold us fast. He will not abandon his people. He will not let us ultimately fall away from him. He will not allow the gospel or the church or the scriptures to be squelched out. He even employs his angels to serve on our behalf. May we take encouragement this morning that we serve the universal ruler, the king of kings, who is even now exalted to the right hand of the father. No matter how dark it gets, we have nothing to fear. No trial is too deep. No valley too dark. His arm is not too short. He will see us through. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for this wonderful text. 
that has yet again exalted our thoughts of you, caused us to understand more fully who you are and what you've accomplished for us. And now as we take of the Lord's table together this morning, we pray that you would help us to be reminded of the the truth of the gospel, the significance of what you've accomplished for us, and how you continue to serve us even still. We thank you and we honor you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.